Welcome to the Open Door Policy. Each week on this podcast, we sit down with a different guest and talk about a letter. Archbishop Vigneron's Unleash the Gospel Pastoral Letter. Let's do it. Let's talk about it. All right. Be about it. Each guest we have on this show we think is living it out in a new and exciting way. Danielle and I are so excited to sit down with Archbishop Vigneron on Open Door Policy to talk about Unleash the Gospel with him, the guy who actually wrote the letter. Archbishop Vigneron, welcome to the Open Door Policy Podcast Studio. It's great to be with you. Yeah, this is great, isn't it, Danielle? This is like I'm ready. an awesome moment. We always start uh, the podcast episode with a rapid-fire question series. So are you ready, Archbishop? I am ready. All right, number one, what was the coolest article of clothing you had when you were a kid? <laughs> <laughs> I had a, 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 a shirt that was uh, something like you might have found out of Happy Days. <laughs> and I thought I was really cool when I got to wear it. That's awesome. What is the most unusual, the weirdest food you've ever eaten? Uh, Chocolate-covered beetles. What is your favorite piece of religious art? Uh, A statue by Donatello of uh, St. John the Baptist. And this is Donatello. Nickname, Donnie. Donnie and his brothers are destined to save the world. Okay, Archbishop, what do you remember about church when you were a kid? That we always sat in the same place, and we had to be there 20 minutes ahead of time. And I very much loved being in church. I especially remember that my mother would uh, swat us if we turned around and looked at the back of the church, because there was nothing for us back there. Wow. But I really, I, I enjoyed being in church very, very much. Okay, now, now to a very serious question. Uh, hamburger, pizza, or taco? Hamburger. Of all the places you have traveled, where would you return? Well, first, certainly Rome. I'd always be happy to go back there. But um, York, England. What is the best piece of advice you have ever been given? Don't second-guess yourself. After you make your decision and think you've done uh, the course you're on, you've set about, just uh, keep going. If you had to teach a class, which you have, what would you Many. teach? <laughs> yeah, like one one class, maybe of something you haven't taught before. Of something I haven't taught before? I'd like to uh, teach a course that interprets uh, uh, classics of literature from a, a theological and philosophical point of view. Actually, mm-hmm. I'm planning to do that after I retire. Oh, nice. Sneak preview. Yeah. Uh, Archbishop, if you could pick your confirmation saint today, who would you choose? I'd stay with the one I picked before, St. John Vianney. All right. Awesome. Thanks. Uh, So all-American hamburger over taco or pizza, right? Right. I actually, I'm very curious about this classics of literature. In the syllabus you've created, what's like the first few books? Well, uh, there'd be some poetry. Mm. I really would want to read uh, the Song of Roland. I think that would be very appropriate. The Song of Roland is an epic poem based on the Battle of Roncevaux Pass in the year 778. For contemporary or 20th century literature, we'd want to read uh, The Diary of a Country Priest by George Bernanos. Bernanos. Je ne crois rien faire de mal en autant ici au jour le jour avec une franchise absolue, les très humbles, les insignifiants secrets. Uh, where did you sit in church when you were a kid? Where did your we sat on sit? the Saint Joseph side, which means the right side facing the main altar. Okay, uh, about three pews back on the main aisle. So close to the front. Yes. 
Okay, and you were the oldest in your family, right? I still am. <laughs> you are the oldest in your family. Did you have like co-responsibility during uh, church, during Mass, to uh, keep your younger siblings in line? No, because my parents belonged to the school of thought that uh, little uh, underage children before grade school shouldn't be coming to church. Oh, So wow. they always went in uh, shifts. So there was always a parent at home. Uh, and then uh, one go into church. And so we didn't have uh, anybody under uh, first grade go into church. Now, I know a lot of people don't agree with that, but that was my mom and dad's theory. And, and it worked for your family, right? It for did. Them. My yeah. mother said, I'm not taking that baby to church. I can't hear mass. Hmm. Where did, uh, do you remember what masses you would go to, your Eight family? Eight and ten. Okay. Because if you went to 1130, the day was already shot. <laughs> which, which did you prefer as a kid? Um, eight o'clock. Were you an altar server? Oh, certainly, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was really good. I used to teach the other servers. Oh, good. And wait, another question. Whereabouts did you have these chocolate covered beetles? Um, at my aunt and uncle's house on a, uh, a Christmas holiday, and it was a kind of a, a curiosity. Ah, okay. It wasn't somewhere exotic, although you have traveled a bit. Yeah, York, England. What's in York, England? It's a beautiful, small city, and uh, it just gives you a, a, a wonderful sense of the atmosphere of uh, uh, sort of authentic England. Do they call it Old York? No. Or just, just plain Old York? My recollection is just York. Okay. And do you have a place, like, when you go to Rome, is there, like, a place that you always like to stop and see? Oh, I always have to go to the the Chiesa Nuova, uh, the Church of uh, Santa Maria in uh, in Valicella, which was built by Saint Philip, and Saint Philip Neri is buried in the church, and so I go and uh, uh, have him give me a pep talk there. I, I love Chiesa Nuova's new church, right? Right. I love how in Rome the new church is the one built at the time of Philip Neri, the 16th century. Right. All right. Well, thanks for answering all those questions, Archbishop. Did I get a good grade? Yeah. <laughs> Archbishop, would you be so kind as to share a little bit about your life and about how Jesus has worked in your life? I'd be happy to uh, talk about my friend Jesus. That'd be wonderful. Um, I really don't have anything very dramatic to say. Uh, I grew up in a family of faith, and we took uh, faith very much for granted. It, it just was part of our life, uh, as much as speaking English or having potatoes at every meal. It was just how we were. Um, as I think about certain experiences of, of my faith, uh, I'm very much aware of a sister who uh, was not my teacher, but the principal of our little grade school in Anchorville. Sister Jane Francis, uh, she was in charge of preparing the servers, keeping us all organized. And Sister had a tremendous devotion to the Blessed Sacrament. And when she was working with us as altar servers, she would really communicate that faith to us and invite us into it in a way that's appropriate for, you know, a kid who's 11 years old, 12 years old. Uh, that was very important in my life. As I look back on it, uh, that was very important. Another important thing about my growth in faith was the confidence my mom and my dad shared with me in the intercession and the care of the Blessed Virgin Mary. 
uh, in our parish in Anchorville dedicated to the Immaculate Conception, uh, we used to have a full nine-day, uh, you know, right-on regular novena before the Immaculate Conception. Uh, Father always got a redemptress priest to come and preach the perpetual help uh, devotions. Mm. And I remember, uh, again, I, as I mentioned about church, about Sunday Mass, my parents uh, never took the little ones to church. So it would be either my dad would go or my mom would go for the novena. But when I was old enough, I went with them. And as I look back on it, uh, I, mean, I just... That is so much a part of my life is how my mom and dad shared that very plain and uh, uncomplicated confidence in the care of the Blessed Virgin to keep things right in, in our family. I remember my mother saying one time in passing that uh, one of her prayers at night was uh, she'd ask the Blessed Mother to keep all of us out of jail, that we would never go to jail. M mission accomplished, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, so th th that, that to me is a very important part of my life is in faith. Of course, coming here to the seminary, I came to uh, Sacred Heart for the ninth grade, in part because of Sister Jane Francis's effort at uh, recruitment. Wow. And... Uh, I really didn't like coming to the seminary. Actually, I'd asked God uh, to uh, have me fail the entrance exam. I thought, <laughs> thought if I if I did my part and I failed, well, then I'd be be okay. But right. mostly because I was homesick and I didn't want to uh, leave home. It well, was ninth a grade big is pretty adventure. young. Yeah. So I you, think it is. So yeah. you came as an eighth grader to take the entrance right. exam. My favorite part is that you didn't try to fail on your own. <laughs> like you still did your best. <laughs> but uh, certainly by being here in the seminary for uh, high school, college, and then on into theology, I had a, a pretty uh, steady growth in my faith. But I do remember when I was 20 years old, uh, becoming very discouraged. It was 1968. I was just reading a retrospective in a, a, a blog posting about what 68 was like, uh, mm -hmm. just the confusion, the riots, uh, everything going on in, uh, in, our, in our country, the confusion in the church. And I came very close to leaving the seminary at that time. And I remember a very clear experience in prayer that I recognized that that would be cowardly, that going away uh, would be a way of uh, letting Jesus down. And uh, a very personal sense of our Lord inviting me not to do that. And that, as I look at it, it was a very, very important part in my faith journey. How close to ordination were you at the time? I was a sophomore in college, so I was six years away. But you had been six years in seminary right. at that time, right? And I was tired of it. Yeah. 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 Another important part of my faith journey was discovering the writings of uh, Cardinal Newman. I remember being in a literature class with a, a lay professor here at the seminary who was just excellent. His name was Dr. Ralph Cabildus. And he was doing his regular presentation, and all of a sudden, he just stopped and addressed me out of the blue and said, Vigneron, you need to read Newman. And then he went back. 
like prophetic word. <laughs> right, <laughs> calling you out. <laughs> then he went back to re- teaching us about Jane Austen again or whatever wow. else it was. Had, uh, had you read a little bit of Newman or even uh, No, and he had a terrible reputation here in the seminary because one of the professors taught a course on the idea of the university, and everybody wow. slept through it. So I... I had no interest. So, but that, I that, that never happens anymore. Uh, but yeah. So I, re, but I respected Dr. Cabildus very much. So I went to the library and and looked, browsed through all the books about that Newman wrote, and I found his sermons, hmm. which are pretty accessible. They're generally, I don't know, about ten pages long, and uh, they're very readable. And uh, it was like I had discovered a great treasure, because. Again, this was when I was about 20. I'm asking myself, do I believe in Christ and the church because this is the way I was raised? Or do I really believe because I believe? Is this my faith as a a grown-up? And I never had any question about uh, whether or not there's a God, but it was about the the importance of the church Mm -hmm. and uh, uh, about the role of, of Christ. And Newman presented... Christ and the church and the sacraments in a way that showed me how uh, important they are. So it was a proof from the the significance of these realities. And uh, I owe a great deal to Dr. Cabildus, and I owe a great deal to Newman for my faith journey. And Newman has been a, a mentor to me for the rest of my life. Uh, as my seminarians and others would tell you, I, I'm always ready to uh, make us read some Newman together. Uh, Newman shows up in the pastoral letter at least once I know of. We'll get to that in a little bit. But it- uh, Danielle, have you ever read anything by Cardinal Newman? I don't. I feel like just prayers, nothing like a full sermon. Were you a student of Archbishop Benares? No, he was long gone by the oh, time I okay. entered seminary. But in undergrad, before I entered seminary, I we were assigned to read his um, his defense of why he became Catholic, his Apologia Pro Vita Sua, the Apologia, his defense for his life, and it was really impactful on my life. It opened my eyes to his his brilliant mind and his clear kind of conviction and conscience through the intellectual route of needing to come into the Catholic Church. He was an Anglican priest and trying to walk this middle ground mm-hmm. between uh, ca- Catholicism and tradition and hierarchy and then kind of the low church version of the Anglican Church. And Newman got to a point in studying especially the history of the church, right, Archbishop? Yes. Where he had to make a decision that in conscience, in my mind, it's clear that the Catholic Church is Christ's church, and he made this radical change in his life and suffered greatly for it. He did. Uh, he was on his way to a brilliant career in the uh, the Church of England, and he gave it all up out of the uh, uh, convictions he had come to about the Catholic Church and Catholic communion. And... Uh, so he lost all those friends, many of them anyway, and uh, he was always considered something of an outsider. Wow. In the Catholic Church, right? right. He wasn't trusted by a lot of Catholic bishops and leaders at the time. Right. Yeah. What a courageous guy. And and <laughs> he's going to be canonized later this year. Pope Francis is going to make him a saint. 
Or There's been a, a miracle approved at his intercession, and so we're looking forward to the date that they uh, set for the canonization. All would right, you consider five. going to Rome for the canonization? I would indeed. Ah. I have canonizations. <laughs> I've been to Newman's uh, burial place. Uh, Which where? is in York? Or no. <laughs> it's, it's in, in England. Okay. It's right? in a little uh, village outside of Birmingham. It was in a little village outside of Birmingham uh, named Rednall. Uh, uh, I assume it'll be moved, right? It, well, it was moved in, oh. uh, into, uh, into the oratory church where he was uh, in charge in the city of Birmingham. We should take open door policy on the road on for the, the road? canonization. For the canonization right? of Newman. We're live I should here. read a little bit. Okay, okay, wait, wait. But we got to get back on track. So you're in seminary, and then you get ordained, right? Right. When does that, that that's, happen? That's the, that's yeah. the terminology. Well, you I'm, didn't just know. <laughs> I'm just clarifying for anyone. I was ordained like, a deacon in 1973 and uh-huh. a priest in 1975. And you began active ministry in parish work, or were you still working at a seminary? No, no, no. Um, after I was ordained a priest in 75, I was made the uh, associate at Our Lady Queen of Peace in Harper Woods, oh. which is uh, very close to St. John Hospital. Uh, it's uh, right along I-94 and uh, Moross Road. And, and I remember you saying you used to walk to do sick calls in the neighborhood, right? right? My communion calls, I used to, because it was a, basically a, a, an urban neighborhood. Yeah. And so I could do all my communion calls on, uh, uh, well, first Friday, and then I was also going two, two weeks as well. So I would go to, every, to anybody who wanted, I would go every two weeks, and I'd, uh, I'd walk the neighborhood, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I have a particular question I want to ask you about your testimony or about your, your life of faith. You've been sent to Oakland in 2003 to be the bishop out there, right? And then you got sent back here, the highlight of your life, to come <laughs> back to Detroit, I'm sure. Can you talk about what that was like as like being sent on mission, uh, this very radical way to follow Jesus that they said, you're going to, we want you to go to the other side of the country, to California. Um, <laughs> just like how different that was and what that, what that was like for you and your own faith. It was a leap of faith, um, which I knew I needed to take because uh, this is what the Holy Father asked me to do. And if uh, he thought I'd be the right guy to be the bishop for Oakland, well, I'm going to trust uh, trust that judgment. Uh, God's got a plan, and it doesn't depend on me. But I didn't know anybody there. Had I w- you been there? Uh, I'd never been there before. Wow. I'd been to uh, I'd been to the other side of the bay uh, around. Uh, uh, Saint uh, San Jose, that area, but I'd never been in the city of Oakland. I didn't know anybody, and uh, it really did call me to a new level of trust and faith and confidence in the Lord. Uh, and uh, He gave me a lot of blessings. Uh, especially, there were some wonderful people in the uh, uh, Knights and Dames of Malta who really were very, very supportive of me and helped me find my way. And there's some wonderful priests in the Diocese of Oakland. Uh, I'm still close to a number of them. And I know the Order of Malta helped you, um, I, don't, I don't know how to say it, helped you, but uh, kind of fulfilled, um, continued your devotion to Our Lady of Lourdes, one of the best uh, Marian apparitions, I would say. <laughs> Top 10. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
the Knights and Dames of Malta, because of their care for the sick and the poor, have a special uh, tie to uh, Lourdes, which is the place where Our Lady is particularly manifest as caring for the sick. And uh, they invited me to be part of that piety, part of that journey, and I've gone many times with them on their uh, pilgrimage. Uh, with uh, They use the French word, the malades. They bring sick people along, and they become the center of the pilgrimage. I would find it very hard to think about being on that pilgrimage without having sick people there to care for and share the pilgrimage. After the Chrism Mass, and the ordination of priests every year in the cathedral. This is the high point of my year. Uh, I tell, Not the Feast of St. Anne. I'm just <laughs> <laughs> I tell the Archbishop my favorite Marian apparition is Our Lady of Guadalupe, mm. but he's got the uh, Our Lady of Lourdes as close. So spoiler alert: it's the same person. <laughs> oh, th- th- thank you, Dan. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> you came back here in 2009, 2010, right? 2009. So 10 years. I'm in my 11th year right now. Right. Do you have a favorite? Father Steve says this is, a, this is the highlight, but do you have a highlight of your vocation generally? Highlight of my vocation? Like assignment, mm-hmm. favorite assignment or assignment that kind of wound up being a blessing that you weren't expecting? Oh, well, being the Bishop of Oakland was a blessing. I didn't know what to expect, so yeah. certainly that was a blessing. I would say the, the work that... Uh, I very much enjoyed being a seminary professor. Hmm. And uh, maybe one way to answer your question is, uh, what do I miss? I, I miss that work. Mm-hmm. Teaching? Yeah, and, and interacting. Kind of walking. Right, a walking pop- with, the, with the students. Yeah. So, Archbishop, you wrote this pastoral letter thing. Right. In June 2017. Uh, And that's what we're all doing here. That's what this podcast is about. We've seen this develop into a movement in the Archdiocese of Detroit here about Unleash the Gospel, what it means for us to live this gift that the Holy Spirit gave us through the Synod. And as we were talking about the letter, you talked about Acts 29 being something on your heart lately, how we're living out the next chapter of the disciples of Jesus. Can you talk about what that means to you? I really came up with uh, that formulation as part of the reflection of the way I always think about the liturgy, and it is Mm -hmm. that the things we read about in the sacred scripture at Mass or in any of the other sacraments, uh, that's really uh, an articulation of what's going to happen in, in the action of the liturgy. Uh, So if we read a text about the mercy of God, his fidelity, that is made real in the celebration of the Holy Eucharist. So I don't like it when people say Catholics are not biblical. Mm -hmm. Uh, We may not have a mastery of the text, but we actually live what the Bible is talking about. And that is a truth I think we need to uh, embrace more and more. So that the point of speaking about Acts 29 is to say that the story has continued. Uh, We're not a different church from the one that came out of the upper room on Pentecost Sunday. Uh, I'm part of the continuation of what Paul and Peter and and, uh, 
Matthias and, and Luke and, and the others, what they all did. And uh, we, we need to think about that and, and appreciate that so that we understand that the mission is a continuation. And we, ha we have everything they had. Uh, we're not any the poorer for those first disciples who came out of the upper room. Uh, it's not like, well, that was the heroic age and now we're, we're back at the muddy time. We've got it. And uh, we need to be encouraged and inspired by that. And I think challenged by it as well. Otherwise, it can seem as if the church is getting old. And the church never gets old. Uh, the, the peculiarity of the work of the Holy Spirit, who is, some people call him the soul of the mystical body, is that he keeps us young. Mm -hmm. uh, the church is always young. I, I like that imagery of Acts 29. It makes me think of this uh, image Jesus uses in uh, Matthew 13 about the kingdom of God being like a household, uh, the head of a household who brings out things old and new from the storeroom, right? So in Acts 29, I think of like connected to Acts, to the very foundation of the church, our apostolic roots and everything that was at um, that moment of Pentecost and we saw flourish during the life of the apostles. But we have to live that out here and now in 2019 mm -hmm in Metro Detroit, in very different circumstances. So to be completely faithful to everything Jesus gave us in his church, uh, but to also look for new and innovative ways to share that gospel message, to share the truth of what Jesus revealed about who God the Father is here and now. And so it's so crucial for us to take on that message for our church. Open question for both of y'alls. What do you see right now in the in the local church that energizes and inspires you like with regards to these things like who do you think is doing creative where do you see the holy spirit still working and moving i'd say it uh, really uh in so many different ways uh people i just had a man today uh offer me a word of encouragement, saying, Bishop, I really appreciate your leadership. You've called us to uh, get a move on, be engaged, uh, be about the, the mm -hmm. mission. And, I mean, I think there are some people who are really doing uh, remarkably notable work. Uh, and uh, But I, I think there's just, there's so many people doing grassroots efforts. Uh, I think the the new fabric, the new tapestry of the church's life in Southeast Michigan, it, God wants it to be woven of just an innumerable number of threads, and it's going. It makes it really a beautiful reality. And I, I just, as I go from place to place, I, I see that happening. I feel badly when people are disheartened, hmm. or uh, they still seem to be stuck in a kind of lethargy about it, or dis being disheartened. Uh, but I'm very encouraged when I find uh, people who, who are on fire, and I think there are a lot of people on fire. I, honest, I said in the letter, I don't know where this is going to go, but we have to do it. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's it's the parable of the sower. The sower went out and sowed seed. It it didn't all fall on good ground. But if we don't sow it, it nothing is going to happen. Right. Mm. That that makes me think of what I was going to respond to Danielle of uh, to your question. Um, 
where do I see this happening? In an odd way, I see it happening where we're making mistakes by trying Hmm, to be innovative, right? Where people are sowing seed and we're realizing, oh, okay, that's kind of rocky soil or that's the path and that didn't work out real well. Mm -hmm. But um, we're trying new and innovative things. I know our evangelization office tried a few things after Christmas and some went really well and some didn't. But, you know, they were things that had never been done before. Right. And I love the fact that we're trying new things to the degree that it may not work, but we only find that out by trying it and not losing heart in that. So just like the sower, uh, I see this happening where where we're stretching to the point where we see, okay, that doesn't work, but we still have confidence God is working. Where do you see, Danielle? I I agree with both of you. There's so many good people with so many beautiful, beautiful hearts. And I love, this is, I was like, can I say something to the person who wrote this? (laughs) Like, (laughs) I feel like part of this is unleashing these people who are doing this work, right? It's unleashed the gospel, but in some way, like letting the gospel come alive and like these individual people who have these individual dreams and talents and seeing that happen. It's unleashing the, the uh, evangelizers. Yeah. No. And it, I've, I've thought that from the very beginning of this process, that this is not about creating uh, a program Mm -hmm. that everybody's got to fit into. We create uh, a structure and and uh, an approach that motivates people, but I have to sit back. We all have to sit back and wait, not wait too uh, lazily, but we have to see what the Holy Spirit's going to do because he will raise up new voices and new energy uh, where it needs to appear. I love that line. Um Dry, dry wood is the best for kindling, yeah. like the best for setting a fire. So that as well. Yeah. Don't worry if your wood feels dry. If you feel dry, God loves dry wood because it's easiest to set a fire, right? I, I think this is one of the the problem. One of the temptations. You know, it, there are opportunities and. Uh, uh, important achievements that are particular to Southeast Michigan, but I also think we have our own very particular set of temptations. And a very common temptation for us, because we've been through such a a social change in uh, Southeast Michigan, is a kind of uh, pessimism. Uh, Oh, we can't do anything. It's never going to be the way it was. Uh, What can we accomplish? Debbie Downer. That's exactly it. you, You put it very well father and uh you know always raining on the parade Mm. and we might not be able to do everything Mm -hmm. but we can do some things Mm -hmm. and that's better than nothing and god will make a great thing out of the little we bring you know the the five loaves and the two fish Uh, it makes me think of guidepost number five with no bystanders which i feel like we come back to all the time danielle (laughs) right but the fact that each of us has a part to play in this it's not Mm -hmm. my job isn't to wait for someone else to do this or to look over there or to call them to action my job is to hear what the holy spirit's calling me to do and then in my work with the archdiocese with my local parish with my family uh, to be part of this movement and no one gets to sit on the bench. No one gets to kind of wait for someone else. We're all called to engage in that. Which maybe in, also ties in, I'll bring in a new one, Good Habit 5, A Spirit of Cooperation. Cooperation. Well, so I love this city. I love Detroit. And I love to drive through it and just look at how broken it is. It's just 
it just is beautiful to me. But when you when I drive through the vast expanses of like broken down homes and like streets that are full of potholes, but still beautiful, beautiful people. Are you doing an infomercial for no. the city of yes, Detroit here? This is the most beautiful city in the world. I will die on this hill. Um, so, so there. Um, it's just so obvious how much bigger this is than one person, right? One person can't help all of Detroit. In the same way, one person can't fix the church, right? We are all the church, so spirit of cooperation. And in communion, this is what mm-hmm. we're, we're about, is uh, we hold one another together in all of this. And, and fi- we get encouragement from other, you know, to point out, uh, dry wood is best for a bonfire. You can't make a fire out of one log. You can't. <laughs> wow. I'm going to get a T-shirt. I like that. <laughs> you can't make a fire out of one log. Yeah. Yeah, the communion of the church. I I don't have that one on my fingertips here where that is, but that's in the pastoral letter. I, I love like just thinking about the theology of communion, right? Like yeah. the way we're united to each other is through the head in the person of Jesus. And to think about that in Holy Communion, that this is what happens as you talk about Holy Communion, the Mass being the center of where we gather and how that's kind of the storehouse of everything Christ gave us. But that's also the means by which I'm united to my brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's a communion that uh, is... 3.1. Thanks, Danielle. You're welcome. Stronger than death, this communion And uh, that, to me, is the great hope. Uh, you know, we talked earlier about my faith. To me, this is one of the great proofs of the, of the truth of, of Christ, is that he really solves this terrible uh, problem of, of human existence, this existential problem of brokenness and being alone. And he overcomes death uh, so that we can have an eternal communion. I saw a bumper sticker the other day that said, "Hate or love beats hate. And I thought, it does, but that's only in Jesus. Right. Yeah. I mean, you can't have some sort of naive optimism about love. Tell that to the victims of uh, the Holocaust or tell that to uh, the prisoners of the gulags. Love beats hate only when it's the love of Christ. Uh, the arc of history in, in this world uh, is tied up with every person's individual life and the decisions we make. And by uniting ourselves to Christ is how we can not just transform ourselves and allow ourselves to become more like Christ, but be the leaven that our world needs. Amen. Archbishop, before we close, we always ask our guests if they have any word or prayer or encouragement, anything they want to share with the listeners here. So I think about it, Father... Uh what I want to assure everybody who might hear this uh, broadcast is uh, an assurance of prayer that uh, I hold everybody in prayer. This is the prayer I bring to the Mass, especially every day, that the Lord would bring to salvation, to eternal happiness, all the people who are entrusted to my pastoral care, and I lift them up to the Lord, uh, especially ask the Lord to provide whatever they need, and I ask people to pray for me. I, I, I need the, the strength of the Holy Spirit now more than ever. Thank you, Archbishop. Thank you. You're welcome. Enjoyed being with you. I'm so grateful Archbishop Bingeron joined us on Open Door Policy. 
He has such a huge job and so many responsibilities, but to hear about his personal faith and his walk with Jesus was a great inspiration to both Danielle and me, and hopefully to you. Be sure to subscribe and like us on iTunes and to bring your friends along for the ride. And if the Holy Spirit has inspired you while listening today, be sure to pass this episode along to someone else who might enjoy it. Open Door Policy was produced at Sacred Heart Major Seminary for the Archdiocese of Detroit. We'd like to thank our creative team, Christine Warner, Ron Pangborn, Paul Duda, Patrick Hodgden, Devin Buston, Patty Maldonado, Naomi Vrezo, Joe Peltier, Epsi Christostomo, and Edmundo Reyes. Join us next time when we discuss the well-dressed, joyful missionary disciple. You know, like the kind of thing Fonzie would wear. I'm Father Steve Polis with Danielle Center. And this has been another episode of Open Door Policy. 